I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Grant to us now, Father, we pray in these moments that we'd rightly see and hear and understand this, your word. Oh, Father, by spirit, your Holy Spirit, overcome the weakness of the presenter and let the glory be upon Christ. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as we think about worship, sometimes we use words which puzzle or even sometimes alarm people. Take the word liturgy. Not a word that gets a lot of attention in Baptist churches. Uh, many are bothered because they can only think of a very specific and what I'd call high church approach to liturgy. Basically, liturgy is nothing more than the ordering of a worship service. It includes specific pieces, a call to worship, prayer, scripture reading, so on. But the fact is, you've likely um, gotten very familiar with liturgy in your daily life. Uh, just in the normal things you do. In fact, some of you have already practiced liturgy this morning before you got here. Um, some of you went to a drive through restaurant or coffee shop this morning, right? And you were given a specific lane to drive in, right? They get bothered if you get out of those lanes. In fact, most of them pour concrete, so you can't. So you're, you're hemmed in. I know many of you complain about that when you're in line. Don't like that thing on either side. Don't want to be hemmed in. <laughs> There's a menu from which you read. And then there's a speaker with a person on the other end listening. And you not only get in that lane and go to that menu and go to that speaker, you use very specific language. I'll take a number three with orange juice. Or, a little more esoteric, I'll have a venti mocha latte half-calf with heavy cream. You then pull up to a window and face another person to whom you give your offer. I mean, you pay for what you're... And then you go to another window, possibly, and talk to yet another person who hands you what you came to get. And not only that, you pull out in a specific lane. Now, folks, we do that kind of stuff all the time. And I've got to give a uh, thing. That was Matt Merker's thing. I thought that was so... Well done. He did a little book on worship, and that, that just helped me so much personally. Now, having done such personal liturgy already, let's consider what we do before we come in preparation for corporate worship. I, I titled this today, Preparing for Corporate Worship. Now, let's back up a little bit. The first message we considered, worship must be practiced in Christ to be true worship. Okay? You can't do Christian worship without Christ. If Christ isn't somewhere, 
dominance in the service. I don't know what you did, but it wasn't Christian worship. And I fear there have been times I have heard sermons from people that could have qualified to have been preached in a mosque, in a synagogue, or a lot of other places because that never got around to Jesus. And if you don't get around to Jesus, whatever else you've done, you have not done Christian worship. Second consideration we looked at, new covenant worship. New covenant comes with a change in locations. No longer a temple except Christ and his church. A change in mediators. No priests except Christ and his church. A change in practice. No sacrifice except Christ for his church. And then the last time we considered trying to balance that the Lord makes us worshipers of God individually and as a community. Individually, in living your whole life before him as a living sacrifice. In praising God because of this new identity. Corporately, in celebration of our new status. Exalting our Savior who secured this for us. Of, in a sense, gathering with the church in Revelation, the fifth chapter, worshiping the Lamb and He who sits upon the throne forever. Throughout the New Testament, there is this comparison contrast of Old and New Covenant. It's used to demonstrate the New Covenant, the finished work of Christ, is so much greater than the Old Covenant. This especially applies in terms of worship and approach to God. Never lose sight of the fact, my friend, you had to be part of the covenant people if you were going to approach God in worship at the temple. Not to do so was not considered merely offensive. It was a capital offense. There were signs posted throughout the temple that said at the court that entered where Israelites alone could enter. He who comes here as a Gentile or other foreigner has nobody to blame but himself for his ensuing death. Now that'll get your attention. That'd be like putting a sign outside this, this room that said, if you're not a Christian and you walk in here, you got nobody to blame but yourself when we kill you. Now, see, we don't take worship seriously, comparatively speaking. Nor am I advocating that's what we ought to do. I'm simply saying there has been a change. This is what makes Paul's statement in both Romans 12 and Peter's statement in 1 Peter 2 so remarkable. What Jesus tells the woman at the well was absolute heresy in that day. There was only one way to approach God, and Jesus endorsed that approach while saying, the time is coming. A change takes place. Theologian John Frame says it this way, essentially, what is left is worship in the broad sense, a life of obedience to God's Word, a sacrifice of ourselves to His purposes. All of life is our priestly service, our homage to the greatness of our covenant Lord. The author of Hebrews shows us this as well. You've not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg 
that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author shows us We've come to a new place. Our worship, our approach to God has been made more glorious and more delightful than anything offered under the terms of the Old Covenant. We are the objects of God's love. We are the subjects of God's work. Paul tells us we are to be transformed by mind renewal that we might test and discern God's will. Now, what does it mean to test and discern? What's he talking about there? I, I think if we're not careful, we're going to eviscerate that and not see the depth and profundity of it. John Piper said, what's the root issue in verse 2? The root issue is more than right thinking. It's right valuing. Did you hear that? Not merely right thinking, right valuing. Now here's a way to tell the difference. It would be possible perhaps to teach an uneducated person to recognize some of the traits of gold without his knowing how valuable gold is. So you might give him a job panning gold in a stream and you'd pay him a dollar an hour while he accurately tests the yellow stones and tosses thousands of dollars worth of gold nuggets into your bag, right? It's a theoretical possibility. That's not the kind of renewal Paul's talking about. He's not saying read enough books, listen to enough tapes or sermons so you can spot a good deed when you see it and then work up the discipline to do it. He's saying be renewed so deeply in your mind that you can not only test and spot gold when you see it, but also love gold, approve gold, treasure gold. another way. If you want to find out if a certain material is sweet, you might reason logically. It's kind of golden brown, gooey, comes from a beehive, crystallizes if you drop water in it, makes the eyes of a two-year-old light up if you put it on toast. Therefore, you infer it must be honey, and honey sweet. That's not the main way Romans 12, 2 means for you to find the will of God. The way to know if the material is sweet is by the power of taste not merely logic. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So what am I driving at? Preacher, you keep hanging around these same texts. That's all right. I haven't even begun to plumb the depth of these things. Here's what I'm driving at. Corporate worship, as it's intended to be exercised, is an outgrowth of private worship. It is the supernatural outgrowth of a transformed life. At the same time, private worship is strengthened and encouraged 
by corporate worship. This is not to be a choice between two things. It's seeing they are organically related. You don't choose between the two. That said, we must never reduce private worship to nothing more than a checklist. It is the mode of the heart of worship that's absolutely essential. Here, let me see if I can say it another way clearer yet. Our problem is we treat the glorious process of transformation like nothing more than dull duty. That's our problem. What Paul shouts to us, what the text shouts to us, is a life of worship is a transformed and transforming life. Now, let me see if I can demonstrate this. First consideration. Transformation is a work of God's Spirit. We are called, according to Paul in Romans 12, told that we are to be transformed. What I want you to see first is this transformation is the work of God in you. If you don't know and embrace this, you will descend into miserable legalism and performance mentality. Let me show you what I'm talking about. It relates to our response of reading. Now, some of you know exactly where that reading was from because you have great memories and you are paying attention. And some of you are going, what? 2 Corinthians, third chapter. 2 Corinthians, third chapter. Now, pay attention here. Verses 17 and 18. Now, the Lord is the Spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the what? The Spirit. Sounds a little bit like the text from Hebrews. We have new privileges and something which the saints in the Old Covenant didn't have. We are brought face to face with God, God the Son, God incarnate. Now, remember how Paul sets this up. Under the Old Covenant, Moses went up on the mountain to commune with God. And when he came down, his face so reflected the glory of God that he put a veil over it so that people could look at him and tolerate it. Now, that, first of all, ought to shout something to us about the glory of God. That if somebody else seeing the glory of God is so intensive when they come back that a mere mortal can't look at them comfortably, what does that say about actually being in the presence of God Almighty? That's why this is not a flippant thing we are doing here. You know, I sometimes hear, well, I, I just wish I could have seen the mountain. Wish I could have been there. Preacher, you talk about beholding the glory of God, and I'm not even sure how you do that. Seems like the glory of God was easier to see under the old covenant. But Paul answers your questions this way. Chapter 3, verse 9, the glory of the Old Covenant was real, but all it brought was condemnation. 
The glory of the old covenant was real, but verse 11, it was temporary. So where is this glory we're talking about? I mean, we've got some nice lighting up here, but it ain't the glory. And with my balding pate, I reflect that light, but that ain't glory. What are we referencing? That same text in 2 Corinthians, into the fourth chapter. You start reading at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, he's holding on to that veil imagery, right? It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Folks, I, this is staggering. This is the confluence of all sorts of major doctrinal ideas and things that make Christianity what it is. The infinite, personal, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who dwells in inapproachable light whom no man can look upon and live, not directly. The God who had one of his own prophets say, I'm coming apart for I have seen the Lord. I'm ending. I'm disintegrating. The God who descends on Mount Sinai and people are terrified of him. That glorious God has made himself accessible by becoming flesh. Second person of the Trinity takes on humanity. Two natures, fully God, fully man, one person. Yes, you ought to tremble. And yes, you ought to be puzzled. Yes, you should wonder, how is that possible? But my friend, the glory, the Shekinah of God, rather than coming in mere display and rather than coming in destruction, comes and unites with humanity God the Son. And we behold in the face of Jesus Christ the glory of God. And that, my friend, is how you and I are being transformed. Now you, well, wait a minute, I don't see Jesus. Need 
and get a video. Artist rendering. Do something here to help me. How do you and I see him? We see him displayed in this gospel. We see him displayed in the very word of God. And it is through that display, simultaneously with the Holy Spirit transforming us internally, that we see the blessedness, the glory of the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, you can go to worship services that are far more aerobic than what we're doing here today. You can go to places where they will claim visions and dreams and all sorts of things. But I'm here to declare to you, my friend, the way you see the glory of God is not in a vision, it's not in a dream, it's not in some visceral reaction. You see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in this gospel, this gospel that is veiled to those who are lost But to those of us who are being saved, the veil is taken away, and we see him. And we ought not be afraid to say that. I have seen Jesus. I didn't have to time travel. I didn't have to have a vision. Didn't have to have a dream. I see him in this word. That transformation. What I'm addressing here is the promise God has made to change you and transform you by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of perseverance. God who began the work will finish it. Never forget this, believer. Your life of worship is transformational because God promises to transform you. He is at work. Now our problem is we're blind to the transformation. We're not very bright. We struggle with it. Right? And we fail and we stumble and we stagger and we come to service and we come in a bad mood. Come not in the right frame of mind or Whatever it is we're doing on a personal level, it just feels like times we're going through the motions. Aren't you glad that the Lord is faithful even when you're not? Isn't it good to know that when you're stumbling and staggering and you're grumpy and hard to get along with and you're mad at God, you don't admit it, but you're mad because you don't like the way your life's playing out and you're mad at everybody else and you're just frustrated. The Lord doesn't go, I'm done with you. You straighten up, I'll come back. No, he keeps working. And one day you suddenly wake up and you go, Father, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I know, child. I'm a mess. No surprises. I want to do better. I know. I put that in you. And I will make you better. Christian, you are the Lord's love project by His Spirit, by the power of the gospel, to be transformed. Now, how do you know this is happening? Because he promised. But but can I? No. Because he promised. 
Now look at the second part. Your transformation is a work of God's Spirit, but it's also a work in which you participate. You are being transformed. Paul in Romans 12 will say, be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Now what does that imply about your mind? (laughs) By the way, this isn't about IQ. This is not about intellectual capacity. It's about the way you think. See, the world is always trying to shape you. Satan's always at work trying to shape people's thinking. I mean, look at the world around you. Have have you not heard people articulate some of the stupidest ideas? And people applaud like, oh, bravo. And I'm saying that somebody get him some help. He doesn't have any connection to reality at all. I mean, our world... You know, everyone tells me how secularism, you know, we need a secular society because that would be safe and there's, there's nothing like religious faith and secularism. My friends, secularism is a religion. Now, they can object all they want to, but it comes down to the same thing. They've got an explanation for how we got here. They have an explanation for what went wrong. They have an explanation of what they consider to be sin. And usually it's anything you're doing that doesn't endorse what they want you to endorse. You're a polluter. You're causing global warming, which is causing hurricanes. Hurricanes, of course, have never happened until recent history. I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm treading in dangerous areas here. But we we did. There's this whole thing of how you're going to, if somebody says, doesn't matter that I have an XY chromosomal makeup, I am a female, then we're all supposed to go, yay. Men apparently can get pregnant. That's what's being said. Stuff that our fathers and grandfathers would have looked at and said, what? Something not quite right with that boy. And oh, by the way, it has an eschatology. We're either going to blow it up with nuclear weapons or we're going to tear it up by global destruction. And folks, please, we ought to be stewards of what God gives us. I'm not trying to be an ignoramus here, all right? You don't have to try, preacher. You're there. What I'm saying is the world tries to frame the way you think. Be careful that your thoughts don't become captive simply because it's what you want it to be rather than by the reality of the Word of God changing us. There are things we do to participate in this. Now, I know people say, wow, preacher, you're, out of, you're talking worship, now you're out of the worldview and the world and transformation because all of it is united. It is bound together. How you look at this world and you look at yourself has a tremendous impact on how you view worship. Are you astonished, Christian, every day when you wake up? and you say, Wow, I'm still here. Lord, what's today? Now, some of you a little more than others. If you've had some health scares, you understand this better than others. Some of us know it a little more because age is beginning to play a factor. I love the line from Red Skelton. Said, every morning he wakes up and says, if I don't see candles and don't smell flowers, I get up.
You and I participate in this transformational work. Now, I'd have you think about this. In light of 2 Corinthians 4, that we are being transformed in 2 Corinthians 3, what is it that I am supposed to do? Well, I've said this before. I've referenced this before. I'll do this quickly. But you look in Acts 2.42, that first group of converts, that thousand saved day of Pentecost, it says they continued or literally were strong towards the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, if you want a list of things to do, Christian, I just gave it to you. Here are the marks of living like a believer. You're interested in the apostles' teaching, in the fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Already been baptized, that came first. Which you got to see it, right? Anybody besides me think about your baptism this morning? Remember that day? Hmm. Why these things? How have they come to faith? They'd heard the word of God preached. An apostle had told them of Christ, and the Spirit had attended the word with power, and they were converted. How did you come to faith? You heard the word of God. You heard the apostolic testimony, and the Spirit of God swept into your life and liberated you, regenerated you, and suddenly you woke up, and by the power of God came to saving faith. Now, a new hunger and a new thirst came with that. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, my friend, if that word comes to you and saves you, it creates within you a hunger. That word saved me. I need more of that. That word rescues me. I need more of that. Jesus will pray, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The first activity on the part of the believer is to be devoted to the word of God. How do you do this? Keep in mind the early church didn't have any personal Bibles. What you and I towed around with lovely leather covers and hardback and digital and every other sort of way, there wasn't a single believer likely in the first century that had such a thing. What they do, they heard. And the word they would hear preached and taught is the word they would carry with themselves throughout the day and throughout the week. That word impacted them. You and I have an opportunity and a privilege they did not have. Let your hunger and thirst determine your intake of the Word of God. Discipline, and this is useful, but don't let discipline be the only thing moving you. Let there be a hunger and a thirst. Oh, taste and see. The Lord is good. The fellowship, the common life, we need one another. The New Testament makes clear the claim to love God and not love the church is the claim of a liar. Spend time with other believers. Encourage one another in the faith. May I suggest something as well? Not only should you work at a relationship with others within the body of Christ, I would encourage you to make a relationship with others who used to be in the body of Christ and are gloriously home. 
We act as though 2,000 years of other Christians living has never happened and isn't a big deal. And we do it to our own detriment. I fellowship with folks from the 3rd, 4th century at times. You do too. Hear these words. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell or the grave. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He'll come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Ah. Folks, I think about the church confessing that for some 1,800 years, 17, 1,800 years, and it reminds me, I'm not doing this by myself. I commune with Augustine who said, in every man there is a God shaped void I commune with brother Martin who would have found me objectionable as a Baptist who had discovered by the power of the Spirit of God we are justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone The breaking of bread, the ordinance of the Lord's table, the constant reminder of the greatness of Christ and our salvation. We do that here in a few moments. And prayer. How were you converted? You prayed. It's always intriguing to me when I talk to people about coming to faith and, how, well, I don't know how to pray. It's all right. You don't have to know exactly how. He understands. Isn't it, isn't it a glorious reality that you and I don't have to get all the words in the right place? He knows our hearts. This new access and relationship is definitional. We were converted when we prayed. We were, we are to when we're persecuted, we're to pray. When we set apart leadership, we're to pray. When we are martyred, we are to pray. <laughs> when, when they were preparing to take the gospel, the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, they prayed. When they sent out missionaries, they prayed. The epistles are filled with exhortations to pray and examples of prayer. Note a very another and very important element. It says in that same text in Acts 2, they were glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. There should be great joy and gladness in being the Lord. Now why am I spending time on this before corporate worship? Because, my friend, your experience of corporate worship and what happens here is very much, in many ways, dependent on how you live the rest of your life before you arrive. See, here's the danger. We'd like somebody to do this for us in the sense somebody else do it and tell me about it and live on somebody else's experience. We like to come and have somebody tell us about their lovely experience with the Lord. And we go, isn't that wonderful? That gives me hope. Maybe someday that'll happen for me. And then we go and we do nothing. 
Christian, lay hold of this. You are being transformed and you are participating in that transformation. I love this quote from the old Baptist, Octavius Winslow. For one thing, you got, you got a name like Octavius, you got to have something to say. Right? Octavius Winslow. In presenting to you, my reader, the Lord Jesus Christ as worthy of your undivided affection, supreme confidence and unreserved service, infinitely distancing and eclipsing all other beings and all other objects brought in competition with Him, we purpose adopting this principle, assured that the result must be, with the accompanying blessing of the Holy Spirit, the supreme enthronement of Christ in your admiration, trust, and love. As the chief among 10,000 and one altogether lovely, happy shall we be if the conviction of the truth is deepened in your soul, none like Christ. Why, my brothers and sisters, when you lose none like Christ, everything becomes burden, everything becomes boredom, everything becomes difficult. But oh, my friend, when you know none like Christ, transformation, an operation on you, and something in which you participate. Because He is changing you. Now, be careful here. I will tell you, going home and looking in the mirror is not going to help. Unless in this way. And some of you aren't old enough for this yet, but you will be. While our outward man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Oh, that we would be transformed. Oh, that we would believe in that transformation as we believe in Him. Oh, Christian, today, can you confess none like Christ? Let's pray. Our Father, we have heard Your Word we rejoice to have heard it. And we pray now that it go deep within our souls and change us as only you can. For these things we give you thanks that you hear and heed us. Not because we are good, but simply because you are glorious. Help us now, Father, in these moments as we have the Lord's Supper together. In Christ's name, amen.